the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And in the next two segments tonight, we're going to be talking to United States Senate candidate Josh Mandel, who's joining us tonight to talk about Ohio's role in not only the federal government, but really on the the world stage. Uh, Josh, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Great to be on. It's great to have you. We, uh, to start with, for people who have heard of you but don't know much about you, uh, tell us a little bit about your political background. I know with the Ohio State Treasurer and other things, you, you're well-known up here in the Cleveland area. Sure. I am uh, pro-God, pro-gun, pro-Trump. I'm a dad, have uh, three kids, Gideon, who's five years old, Judah, who's seven years old, and Rosie, who's eight years old. Born and raised here in Northeast Ohio. Lived my whole life in the Cleveland area. Uh, my grandfather grew up on Kinsmen and went to John Adams and then went on to serve in the United States Army Air Corps during the World War II era. My grandmother grew up on Glenville uh, and, uh, or grew up on Lakeview and went to Glenville High School. And on my mother's side, my grandfather was a union laborer. He worked at a place called Central Brass Factory here in the Cleveland area, making plumbing parts. And my grandmother uh, stocked the shelves at a drugstore called Gray Drug, which uh, oh, some of your I remember that. listeners yeah, might, might remember. Uh, my grandparents inspired me to join the United States Marine Corps. I joined the Marines in the year 2000, did a couple tours in Iraq along the way in Anbar province, did my small part, and... Uh, I decided to uh, serve in public service here. The Republican Party told me it was impossible to get elected to the state legislature in the area I was running. And I went out there to prove them wrong, prove wrong the Republican Party elitists, prove wrong the power-hungry Democrat Party leaders, prove wrong the media. I knocked on approximately 19,679 doors, wore out three pairs of shoes, and uh, got elected the old-fashioned way. Two terms as a state rep, two terms as state treasurer, and I'm now the pro-God, pro-gun, pro-Trump, constitutional conservative, and leading candidate for U.S. Senate here in Ohio. Now, there's quite a field of uh, people running for U.S. Senate here, and uh, I just saw your, your polling results. You're substantially ahead, uh, and as a, a front-runner, to me, that's always sort of an uneasy position to be in because you know, you're you're out, out front. How do you stay out front? Well, instead of running our campaign through Republican Party groups, we are running our campaign through churches, and uh, we we're sort of sidestepping the Republican Party groups. No disrespect to them, and I, I have a strong feeling that if we're going to save America. It's not going to be done in Republican Party offices. It's going to be done in houses of worship. And so we had our first 
church town hall meeting in a small town called Bucyrus at a church called Victory and Truth Ministries. Our hope was to try to get, you know, 50 to 75 people there. And, Nick, we had over 250 people show up at this church in the middle of a soybean field. We did one at First Nazarene in Finley, which is a rural area as well, had 270 people show up there. Did one at uh, Washington Heights Baptist in the Dayton area, 300 people. Did one at Solid Rock Church in Lebanon, had 500 people show up. We did one at a church in the middle of a cornfield called Community Grace Brethren Church in West Milton, Ohio. Had over 600 patriots show up. And I could tell you that pro-Trump, pro-God, pro-gun, constitutional conservatives all throughout Northeast Ohio and throughout the state are hungry for leaders like me because I'm not going to Washington to be liked. I'm not going to Washington to be invited to the cocktail parties. You know, the the lobbyists and the journalists, they already hate me. I'm going there to not just drain the swamp, but to blow up the swamp. <laughs> well, now, why do the journalists hate you, do you believe? Because like I'm a conservative. Because I'm a conservative, right. and I go after squishy establishment rhino Republicans when they're acting like Democrats. That's one reason the media hates me. Another reason is I call the media out on their lies and their fake news. Uh, you know, for, for instance, you know, the Cleveland Plain Dealer up here, they're a bunch of commies. They were trying to, and they still are, trying to advocate these ridiculous mask mandates on kids and everything. These mask mandates are horrible. You know, putting a, a, a diaper on kids' faces, it's completely unsanitary. It's not keeping them from getting COVID. They're not even, by and large, at risk of death from COVID, you know, it's harming their socialization. It's definitely harming their learning. You know, we've had physicians write letters talking about the fact that suicide rates are up, depression rates are up, yet you have these woke journalists at places like the Cleveland Plain Dealer and the Akron Beacon Journal and these garbage Deadwood newspapers, and they're, they're, they're just dying. They're not even going to exist in a few years because they're so out of touch with the people, and they just lie to the people. Well, when you're going to these different churches and you're having these rallies and and you talk to the people, what are you hearing from the people throughout, I'll call it the great state of Ohio, because just what you described, all these locations are really stretching far and wide over all the the farmlands we have here in in the state of Ohio. What are you hearing from the people as far as their knowledge and their engagement in all of these national topics? Yeah, well, a lot of them, even before I stepped foot in the church, they've already gone to my website, you know, joshmandel.com. And so when I come into the church, they say, hey, we know you're pro-God, we know you're pro-gun, we know you're pro-Trump. And they say, tell me about it. And so when I talk about being pro-God, it means protecting life from conception to natural death, taking on the abortionists, taking on the baby killers and protecting innocent children. You know, I think... uh, Baby in the womb is a child, not a choice. We talk a lot about protecting religious liberty and protecting religious freedom. You know, the secular left, Nick, in this country, they're trying to destroy the Judeo-Christian bedrock of America. And there's so many so many variables that separate that Judeo-Christian ethic from other belief sets, you know, from radical Islam and atheism and all these other belief sets. But 
One of the main differentiating factors is our acknowledgement of good versus evil and our willingness to fight for good over evil. And I talk about a lot of the evil going on in this country right now. You know, they're pushing this critical race theory, which divides kids down racial lines. You know, tr- you know, it seeks to assign to a seven-year-old girl with bows in her hair who just wants to, you know, play kickball and hopscotch. They're assigning racism to her and basically calling her a racist. It, it's 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 gross. It's vile, and uh, yeah, it's just it's just something we have to combat. You know, they're trying to teach five-year-olds they can pick their gender. I mean, that's horrifying. You know, there's only two genders. Boys are boys and girls are girls. And so I talk a lot about that under the umbrella of being pro-God. And then I talk about being pro-gun. You know, I believe the Second Amendment protects all of the other amendments to the Constitution. I, I think at the end of the day, we're blessed with the Second Amendment for one main reason, to combat tyranny from the government. There's a lot of tyranny going on right now. You and I know that. And you look at socialist regimes, you look at communist regimes, you know, what's one of the first things they do? They take away the guns. And then they take away God, and then they take away speech, free speech. Take a look at what Biden and Kamala Harris are doing right now. Feels awfully similar to Venezuela and Cuba and Soviet Union and China. Well, and then I talk about being. So f- oh, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. Then I talk about being pro Trump. You know, I think Trump was the best president of my lifetime, and yeah, I think he's just. Uh, I, I believe very passionately in the Trump America first agenda. Well, that, that is, we're going to take a break uh, in, in a moment, but uh, this is such a far cry from being treasurer, uh, going from treasurer to going to the, what I would call the center stage on the national scene, being in the United States Senate, the most exclusive uh, 100 member club in, in U.S. government, I think. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit before our break here, but do you see that as being much of a change from going from treasurer to U.S. Senate? Well, as treasurer, and we could talk about it after the break, I was at the pointy tip of the spear fighting against squishy establishment Republicans in Columbus, and I'm going to do the same thing when I get to Washington. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're basically you know, just sort of switching your direction. Uh, but really the same issues and the same attitudes that you had before, I would assume. Well, you know, I, I, w- I wouldn't say switching direction. You know, I would say like all of my beliefs and philosophy and ideology are the same. It's just fighting the fight, you know, in Washington, you know, instead of fighting it in Columbus. Yeah, that's what I meant, is that at least the, the focus now is going to be a grander scale. Uh, but we're going to take a short break. We're talking to United States Senate candidate Josh Mandel, who's also the former treasurer of the state of Ohio. We're going to be back after these words. We're going to talk to Josh some more about what he anticipates happening in Washington in the next few years with him in the Senate. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. And with us tonight is U.S. Senate candidate Josh Mandel. Josh, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you so much. Uh, you've been involved in so much government and providing so much service, not only to the government, but also with the military. Uh, the U.S. Senate, a different venue, and uh, as, as we're moving along, there's a lot of issues that are issues that we are aware of here in Ohio that you'll be our spokesperson for in Washington. Uh, with that, there's the question of election integrity. I know you're sponsoring some rally with regard to that. Tell us about election integrity here in Ohio, and are we in jeopardy of anything? Sure. Well, I'm the only candidate in this race for U.S. Senate who is willing to say that I believe the election was stolen from Donald J. Trump. I'm the only candidate in the race who's taken the time to go out to Maricopa County to the Veterans Coliseum where they're auditing the vote in Arizona. I'm the only candidate in the race that's called for an audit in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia. And on top of that, I believe we should audit every state in the nation, even states like Ohio, where Trump won by big margins. My guess is he won by an even larger margin, were it not for all the cheating from the Democrats. And you know, as a U.S. senator, I will do everything I can to stop the uh, H.R. 1 and S. 1, the Pelosi Schumer efforts to federalize elections that would that can will destroy the republic. And I believe this election mm-hmm. integrity is so important. I think the election was stolen from Trump in 2020 and before we move on to 2022, we have to investigate what actually happened in 2020 to make sure it never happens again. That's why I think we need to abolish the January 6th commission. It's a big waste of time and taxpayer resource. And if we're going to replace it, replace it with a November 3rd commission to actually investigate what happened November 3rd, 2020. Well, looking back from Washington to Ohio with regard to election integrity, uh, coming from Ohio, do we have to change anything here in Ohio, or are we in pretty good shape? We do have to change some things here. First of all, we need to institute photo ID here in Ohio. Uh, voter ID is not enough. We need photo ID. And, you know, the Democrats say it's racist to have to show your photo to vote. It's a bunch of baloney, Nick. There's nothing racist about it. You got to if someone's on welfare, they got to show their photo ID to get their welfare mm-hmm, benefits. Mm-hmm. If they're on unemployment, they got to show their photo ID to get unemployment benefits. So it's obviously not racist. Even, you know, the Democrat National Convention, <clears throat> you know, you need a photo ID to get in there. Is that racist? You know, ask John Kasich. You know, he had to show his photo ID to get into the Democrat National Convention. And so, yeah, that's one thing here in Ohio we should institute photo ID. Second, here in Ohio we should get rid of these voting machines. Dominion, but also all the other voting machines. I think the voting machines were a solution in search of a problem. It wasn't, a, it wasn't broken in the first place, so we should go back to paper balloting. Another change we should make is get rid of this three and four weeks of voting. We don't need three, four weeks of voting. Just have one day. It's called election day. Go vote on election day. Another thing we should get rid of is all this vote by mail. People can go to the polls. 99.9% of the people go to the polls and vote. If you want to vote, you know, obviously for senior citizens who are disabled or other people with disabilities, you know, they could vote absentee. But short of that, people should have to go to the polls. And so, yeah, that's uh, those are a lot of the changes I think we need to make here in Ohio and around the country. Well, there's so many other things going on, too. Uh, I know with your background in the military, uh, with the Marines and so on, uh, I'm sure you have opinions concerning Afghanistan and, and what's going on there and what's going to happen. Uh, the Senate plays a huge role with regard to uh, 
influencing the White House as far as what the president can and can't do with the War Powers Act and those kinds of things. What are your thoughts concerning Afghanistan, what happened, and what's the future? Yeah, I have very strong feelings about what happened in Afghanistan. You know, it's my emotions range from livid to blood boiling to sad. And, you know, as a Marine who did a couple tours in Iraq, I have a lot of buddies who served in Afghanistan as well. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's tough. It's been really tough to watch. You know, one of the things I feel very strongly about is that if Trump were president, if he were in the White House, if he were the commander-in-chief, those 13 Marines, soldiers, sailor, they wouldn't have died, Nick. They'd still be with us. Max Koviak from Berlin Heights, Ohio, young man, not too far out of high school. And it's uh, mm-hmm. it, it's just tough to watch. You know, if you want, I can uh, get into details. You know about well, the, the withdrawal. I, Do you want to get think... in, get in the weeds? I can talk about Biden's failures. Well, I. I... I don't want to take away from you talking about what you're going to be having to do in Washington, assuming you win the election, assuming you're sitting as a U.S. senator. We have the next six years, or you have the next six years, to deal with the problems of Afghanistan, Iraq, terrorism generally, the economy, the uh, coronavirus, immigration, uh, all these things that you're mentioning. how how, are you, how do you see the next couple of years, the immediate out years, like year one and two? What do you see these issues uh, being, and, and how do you see them turning? Is there an end to it? I noticed that when Trump was president, you know, he had all these issues with regard to problems with the economy and so forth. And now with Biden as president, he has same pro- different kinds of problems, but same kind of problems. We're, we're going to see these going on and on. But from the Senate point of view, how do you see it going, and how do you see your role? Well, when you say how do you see how do you see it going, how do I see what going, Nick? Oh, well, the government is going to remain complex. The problems mm-hmm. facing the government will remain complex and multiple. Mm-hmm. So, so the question is, I mean, any topic we choose, for example, uh, just looking at Iran, we can get into the weeds about what happened with uh, Afghanistan. And, and see what happened there, but in our limited time, we, we can't get into that. But Afghanistan is going to be there, and with uh, no central government other than the Taliban, we're going to see probably more terrorists come out of Afghanistan. So mm-hmm. we're going to be facing that. There'll be a problem that the Senate and the entire U.S. government is going to take and face. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was wondering, of, of all the issues that are out there that are, that are still percolating, uh, even with the economy, with uh, with the supply lines and the logistics going on of, of goods coming into this country, uh, you're going to have your hands full, as will everyone in the Senate. W- which do you think will be the the biggest single problem that you first have to address in the Senate? Right, China. I think we are in a uh, economic fight, a security fight, a fight mm-hmm. for the future of our kids and our country. And I think China wants to destroy America. The Chinese Communist Party is squarely focused on destroying America. 
and you know it's going to be one of the fights of our day. With China out there, what what do you see the Senate can do as far as legislating controls or at least policy for the U.S. in dealing with China? Is there any direction you'd want to push on that? Absolutely. I mean, I have so many strong feelings about this. You know, we have to stop the economic cheating coming out of China. We have to stop mm-hmm. the intellectual property theft of American companies coming out of China. We have to stop the property rights theft coming out of China. We have to stop the currency manipulation coming out of China. You know, obviously, there are enormous human rights violators as well. They just murder people who disagree with them. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a multitude of fights against China. At the end of the day, I mean, if you want to zoom out and sort of think about it like 10,000-foot level, Nick, the 10,000-foot level is they want to destroy America. They are focused on destroying our jobs, but eventually they want to destroy our entire country. And we have to put the American worker first, the American citizen first, and our country first. And unfortunately, you have Democrats and Republicans over many generations, over many White Houses, who just were lapdogs and partners helping China do this to us. And Donald Trump was the first president in my lifetime to have the guts, the intestinal fortitude, the wisdom to take on China. It's one of the main reasons why I just feel so strongly about President Trump and the Trump America First agenda. Well, the, uh, we're almost out of time here, but uh, you sound certainly well-versed in all of these topics, and we've only scratched the surface of all the topics to talk about. But uh, answer one question. Are you having fun doing the campaigning? That's a big question. I am. I am. You know, we're in the seventh largest state in the nation, and in Ohio, every corner of the state I crisscrossed last night. I was in Versailles yesterday afternoon. I was in Cincinnati uh, you know, today I'm in Cleveland, tomorrow I'll be in Granville, I'm all over the state. Everything Ohioans stand for and represent is everything that's strong about America. Patriotism, God, family, country, and there's just a Midwest modesty about our people here. And uh, I just, I love the fact that I was born and raised in Ohio. I love the fact that I'm going to have the opportunity to fight for the people of Ohio in the U.S. Senate. And uh, I love raising my kids here. You know, I'm a, I'm a proud Marine Corps vet, proud American, and proud Ohioan. Outstanding. Well, it, it, I'm glad to hear you're enjoying it because it's going to help fortify all your enthusiasm and your energy to continue to do what you're doing. So thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Nick. Have a good one. You too, Josh. That was Josh Mandel, Senate candidate for the United States, Senate here in Ohio. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next few segments, we're going to be talking to Carla Gore from Kent State University. Uh, she's in charge of the Anti-Racism and Equity Institute at Kent State, and it, it's somewhat of a new institution. Carla, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Sydney. The Anti-Racism and Equity Institute, Kent State University, and it's 2021. 
what, what are we doing with this now and why now? What, what happened since the 60s? So, Nick, um, you know that Kent State has had a, a very strong and rich history of activism, uh, including work that has moved the university and the nation toward, toward uh, racial inequality, toward increased racial inequality. So, for instance, uh, the Black United Students Group on campus has had a strong presence at Kent for decades and was an important part of facilitating the celebration of uh, Black History Month every, every February. So uh, back in 2020, um, COVID-19, that pandemic uh, has been you know, devastating for our country. And we know that it disproportionately impacted Black and Brown communities. So during that time period, there was more focus placed on issues of racial disparity and access to health and health care. And that, coupled with the high-profile killings of Black people in America during that time, really created an opportunity, an opportunity for the nation and for Kent to refocus energy to refocus energy and attention uh, on issues of, of racial inequity and inequality. And so at Kent State, we have begun working on that problem and the problems that stem from racism. The, um, my, my first question going back to like back in the 60s, uh, there's sort of, uh, we, we talk about woke and being awakened. It, that was all going on back in the 60s when I was at Kent, 60s and 70s. Uh, didn't we make any progress between then and now? Why, why do we need to do this? Certainly. I mean, certainly what, hap- what uh, happened? Didn't, didn't we make any improvements over these last 50 years? <laughs> well, certainly gains have been made. And there's lots of evidence that, that indicates that, that gains have been made. We've seen gains in the, you know, access to education for uh, communities of color. We've seen gains in access to um to the advancement into the middle class for communities of color. But regardless, the data is still clear. We see these really stark disparities in areas of of healthcare, in areas of wealth accumulation, in the areas of security and and experiences with the criminal justice system. Um, And I think that one of the things that happened in 2020 is that really broke open why the disparities in terms of health and health care, the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on communities of color was um, was something that was real and that we had to grapple with. Uh, both individuals within communities of color and people that are not members of communities of color. It impacted all of us. Um, also the experiences of people with criminal justice system and with the police in, during that time period. And, and the and the um, and and the the years preceding that um, really brought us brought issues of inequality into stark focus. And so I think that this this led to um, to what to what to what happened in the fall of twenty and in spring of twenty one when Kent decided to move and move resources um, to to consider. Um, anti-racism mm-hmm. activities at Kent. Um, and also the students demanded it. The students asked that attention and resources be made available. 
to examine race, to examine racism, and also work to eradicate it on our campus and beyond. And so in many ways, the things that are happening right now in terms of anti-racist activity at Kent are student-led. The Institute itself, uh, how many people are associated with it and how large of an operation do you have? The Institute now is, uh, we're very much uh, in a building phase of the Institute. Um, so right now it has one director and we are assembling, it has a, a director and a, a core group of faculty and administrators that support the Institute. We are creating an advisory board um, and several executive boards moving forward this year. Um, and so it's, fair, it's still a small operation, but, but, um, but built, but it is growing and it has lots of support from the university. Um, administrators, faculty, students, and staff have all expressed tremendous support for a program like the Institute that will center and advance racial inequality on our campus. Well, you're tackling a problem as a new institute from scratch, uh, a problem that has been observed for hundreds of years, literally. Um, what are the goals and objectives of the institute, and how, how are you going to attack these things and sort of make some useful sense out of what's going on and make some recommendations to make make things better, which I think is everybody's goal ultimately. Yes, I agree. So the goal, so the institute will work as a multidisciplinary hub that welcomes faculty and staff and students from across our eight campuses, from across our colleges and disciplines. Um, we're encouraging these folks to come together, work together, collaborate uh, in an effort to advance racial justice through scholarship and through creative activity. That is the goal. And so the Institute is going to be working to help promote and accelerate these types of research-rich interactions. We want to make sure that the people across campus who are doing complementary work, we want to make sure that they can connect. We want, to, we want to create networks of people to move equity forward. Um, we also yeah. committed to Go a ahead. strong relationship. We're also committed to strong relationships with community partners. The Institute's going to be something that's very public-facing. So while we um, promote and um, value uh, the sort of traditional research that, that universities tend to produce, we also want to make right. sure that the information produced is accessible to the public, that, um, that is valuable and relevant to the public, and that's something that, that we're also really excited with. So we just want to make sure that the Institute, that, that this hub, this multidisciplinary, multifaceted hub is just brimming with people, uh, both whom are affiliated with Kent and those beyond the university. We think that that will serve the greatest good as we come together um, and try to tackle some of these issues that you're right, have been, you know, that have been with us for years. Um, I think we have a pretty realistic view of what we're up against. So what we're hoping is that, that we can, you know, create these teams that can examine these issues, that can come up with interventions 
to help decrease inequality in our society, both on our campus and in our communities? Well, that, that's a, a big thing to do. And a lot of generalities that we're talking about, we're going to be looking at how do we focus that into some concrete action items and then measuring the results of those action items to find out whether or not we are making a difference. So are there other universities that have uh, such an institute? Or there are several. There are several, in there are several universities. American University has an institute. Uh, that focuses on issues of anti-racism. Boston University has an institute that focuses on on these sorts of issues. Um, Southern California uh, has an institute that looks at this. So there are institutes. There are not a lot of anti-racism institutes. There, there are plenty of institutes that focus on race relations. Um, and I'm sure that that within those institutes there, are lots of anti-racist elements, but there are few that focus really solely on anti-racism. And when, and when I talk about anti-racism, I'm talking about scholarship that focuses on how racism undermines the well-being and the safety and the social mobility of racially marginalized, marginalized populations and um, works to create equitable outcomes. So the type of research that we're interested in supporting and promoting is uh, is actionable research. So we're interested in learning more about racism and how it works, and uh, we're also interested in learning how to intervene and decrease how to intervene and change it. Yeah. Well, very good. We're talking to Carla Gore. She's the director of a new institute at Kent State University, the Anti-Racism and Equity Institute. And uh, she's uh, sharing with us tonight uh, what, what is going on with that institute and, and what we can look forward to seeing over the next next years down at Kent. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back uh, after these words with Carla Gore from Kent State and talking more about the Anti-Racism Equity Institute. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Carla Gore from Kent State University. She's the director of the Anti-Racism and Equity Institute. Uh, we're talking about racism today, 2021. And um, my questions are, why do we still have racism? It's been like 50 years from Kent since we've been doing uh, you know, anti-racism programs. So, uh, again, Carla, thank you for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having you know, there a couple of th Oh, you're welcome for joining us. Uh, you know, over the, uh, the many months, we've been talking uh, about politics with a lot of the guests. And I know with an anti-racism equity institute, we run into some uh, interesting problems with uh, the semantics of, of the vocabulary and glossary we, we use in, in this situation. Uh, one of the problems is that you know anti-racism, that by recognizing different races and focusing on them, that's racist in itself. How do we respond to people who are saying that we should really get rid of racism altogether, but still recognize the different racial groups that may be impacted by societal practices? How, how do we address those issues? Well, thank you for that question. 
So, uh, and I think that that is as is an important question, and and it's one that 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 we do hear um, frequently. There's something about the term, you know, racism that that um, that 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 it can be upsetting for for folks. But I think that in our institute, um, in our institute, we really we focus and rely on an evidence-based type of um, an evidence-based program that that suggests to us very clearly that there are, you know, stark disparities or differences when we talk about things like healthcare, income, education, wealth, um, the criminal justice system. And controlling for other factors, race continues to explain much of this disparity. And so we hope through the efforts of our institute, that we will come to a place where we don't need to talk about issues of race and racism. But we're not there yet. So to those folks who are concerned about the language and the semantics that that we use, I I am with them. I think we're on the same team. And I think that that, that the common ground we can find is that we want to work to eliminate these sorts of disparities. And when when racial, you know, um, when we talk about equity and moving toward equity, we're talking about an absence of systemic disparities. So when those disparities are removed, we won't have things like the Anti-Racism Institute. So um, I think that moving, to, I think that the work of our institute can create an environment where we don't have to talk about issues of race. So I hope that folks who are concerned about that will join us so that eventually um, we can create the type of world that they and we want to live in, where race doesn't determine access to things like education and health care. That, that raises another issue that, that we're hearing about over while well, just watching how this country has been divided politically. And we have a couple of forces that, that are out there. Number one, I think... Uh, when we saw 9/11, you know, 20 years ago, with uh, how the country was brought together, everyone was an American. We had sort of this unanimity of everyone being part of the same American group. We we're all American citizens, and so on. Yet, on the other hand, we have a lot of groups uh, that are sort of falling into what I would call a tribalism where they focus on their, their cultural backgrounds, whether it's African-American or Latino or German or Italian. Um, there, there's a place for that, but the question is when it dominates and is added to the division between sections and sectors of the country, uh, we end up with looking at which sectors are doing better than others and which cultures are doing better than others. And if we look at it from that way, um, how is the Institute going to reconcile between the unanimity of all Americans versus people who want to enjoy their, their cultural backgrounds? Is that, is that a problem or what, how do we handle that? Well, I'm not sure that... Um I'm not sure that the Institute would regard that as something that we are uh, not supportive of. Certainly the Institute wants to promote um, uh, backgrounds 
of diverse groups of people and wants to create, you know, um, an atmosphere of safety so that people can talk about and celebrate their background. The Institute also wants to create equitable um, environments so that, so that the disparities faced by different racial groups uh, are not as easily politicized. Um, we want to decrease those disparities and increase equity so that policy and policymakers will need to find other things to use to create um, to create uh, group and, and group building within their constituencies. We want to eliminate issues of racism so that they're no longer issues um, for us here in, 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 in our country. I would, I would think that uh, during this COVID time of our lives, uh, 2020 especially, that there, there may have been some opportunity to uh, not look at people as being racially uh, aligned with one group or another when there was so much uh, remote studies. Has that actually happened? Where we benefited um, because of because we're not together. Yeah, I was thinking by working remotely, uh, you know, race isn't much of a deal because you don't even know the race of the students that are out there who are participating remotely. Mm-hmm. So, so it'll see. be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. I think that's an interesting question, Nick, and it'll be interesting to see what sort of research comes out. Um, as scholars begin to study this time period. What we do know about um, how, in, how race has impacted um, students, in particular during, this, during, during the period of COVID, is that there's, there's the digital divide that we know has been problematic for many years now, where some students have access to better and higher quality technology than others. That, that disparity really impacted students during COVID but because when colleges and universities and K-12 through programs went online, in order for students to be able to access um, educational resources, they had to have working computers. They had to have strong and consistent internet access. Um, and we know that when students, when students don't have access to that, and we know that that, that communities of color are less likely to have, to have access to those sorts of resources. That really impacts the students' ability um, to learn and to thrive um, in terms of education during the times when the school systems were shut down for students to actually physically attend. So we do. So here we see an example of racial inequity impacting the way that students can access education, our institute is interested in figuring out ways to reduce that equity so that we don't have that sort of disparity in access. So, so yes, I see your point. While on the one hand, we might not be aware of someone's racial background while interacting with them on the computer if cameras are off, we certainly know that individuals access those sorts of resources impact whether or not they even are on, you know, are, are on internet sites and on educational sites during, um, 
steering educational programming. Well, we uh, have a little less than a minute to go here, but I wanted to thank you, uh, Carla Gore from Kent State University, the director of the Anti-Racism and Equity Institute at Kent State. She has one of the privileges of starting from scratch with a institute that she gets to uh, shape and make it uh, very, very helpful. So, uh, Carla, thank you so very much for uh, joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you again after you've been in power for a while and find out what kind of progress we've made. So thank you again. Thank you, Nick. I look forward uh, to that. Thank you, Carla. And thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, healthy, and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning And only my mind for company Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.